Good morning, Center Church. Today we begin our journey to finish up the book of Revelation that we began at the beginning of the year and then took a break uh, throughout the summer. Since it's been three months since we last looked at Revelation, I want to spend a chunk of our time this morning reviewing where we've been in the first 11 chapters to provide a bit of a refresher, as well as to give a consistent starting point for all of us, some of those of you who are new or newer. Um, so what I want to do to begin is I want to go back to the beginning of Revelation because it sets us up with what to expect and how to read the book of Revelation. So Revelation 1.1, what we read there is the first five words of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. These five words are so crucial to our ability to understand the whole of the book of Revelation. So the Greek word for revelation here is a word known as apocalypsis. Now, this is helpful for the reader because it conveys the idea regarding the type of literature this book is. It's a literary style known as apocalypse. And one unique aspect of apocalyptic writings is its usage of symbolism. Now, the usage of, usage of symbolism is also a primary reason why people get so confused by this book. It's read, so many people try to read Revelation literally and not symbolically. Revelation is a book that is full of symbols and especially from the Old Testament, which means that the Bible itself is the most helpful interpretational tool for us as we begin to understand or try to understand this book. Now, for a variety of reasons, many of us have not grown up reading much of the Old Testament, even if we grew up in the church. So really, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, many of us have a low Bible IQ, just overall speaking generally, but, but especially when it comes to the Old Testament. So this is a book that is full of symbols. But the symbols, they're not meant to confuse us. They're intend to, intended to reveal, to make things clear. Specifically, what it's revealing is, what we read here in Revelation 1.1, is it's seeking to reveal Jesus. This book is focused on helping the reader see and to know Jesus as he truly is. The intent, then, is for our attention as we read this book is to be drawn to Jesus. Now, when many people read Revelation, their attention is drawn to the newspaper or current events or economic impacts or wars. That is not the author's intent. When we read Revelation, the desired intent is that we see Jesus. That is what we are supposed to see. That is who we are supposed to see as we read this book. Now, this tendency to get distracted from Jesus is exhibited in the ways this book is interpreted. In our first sermon on this book, I spent some time laying out the four main ways this book has historically been interpreted. So what I want to do is give just a brief review of the four views that are, are kind of the primary ways of interpreting Revelation. The four views are known as futurism, historicism, preterism, and idealism. So what I want to do here quickly to begin is just give a quick de definition of each of these. So I want to start with futurism. 
aside from the first three chapters of Revelation, which are timeless truths for all generations, Revelation provides a description of future events that will occur at the end of all things. So a futurist is reading the book of Revelation and saying much of it, most of it, is has not happened yet. It's something that will be occurring in the future. So that's futurism, appropriately named looking to the future. Next up, we have historicism. Historicists say that Revelation is a chronological description of events that occur from Jesus' death and his resurrection until his second coming. And so in the events described in Revelation, a historicist is going to try and associate those events with Nero and Rome and Muslim invasions in Europe and an evil pope and many other events and things that have happened throughout history. But they will also see the end of Revelation as a future event where Satan will ultimately be destroyed. So that's it. that is the historicist perspective. Then we have preterism. They say all of Revelation, aside from the last three chapters, has already taken place in the first century. The Jews and Rome are the main culprits of persecution for Christians. So a preterism, you, you can also call that pastism. So they're very focused on, they're saying that everything has happened, basically everything has happened in the past. So those are the first three perspectives. And with those first three perspectives in mind, what I want to do is I want to stop here and provide four reasons why these views, why I believe these views are unhelpful and at times even misleading for us. So first reason, these views provide an unhealthy focus on historical events, which ultimately then moves us away from the Bible. These perspectives lead us to become experts on things that are not Jesus. And this movement away from Jesus and the Bible then leads us into our second unhelpful aspect, which is essentially a dismissal of the Old Testament. I mentioned already, in order to understand Revelation, we must have some grasp of the Old Testament. Our tendency is towards microwavable solutions. So, so our tendency today is to try and find the shortcuts. How can we get to where we want as quick as we can? And when we do that with the Bible, it's going to cause us to get confused. We will, by, by trying to skip over the Old Testament and all the symbols that are found there, we're going to ultimately end up confusing ourselves. Because what we're doing is we're moving away from that which is most helpful. And, and what we're trying to do then is not only are we moving away from that which is most helpful, the Bible, we, we get distracted by current events or things going on in the world. Okay, third then, the present importance of Revelation is diminished. With so much emphasis on the past or the future, we can lose sight of the fact that this book is written for us today. It has a ton of relevance for us today. So I said in the first sermon many weeks ago that this was not written to us, but it was written for us. 
And we need to understand that there is just as much a present word for us today as there was in the first century. Verse uh, Revelation 1 verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The Revelation itself is calling us to read aloud these words. And when we do that, we will be blessed by them. We need to read Revelation in a way that will helpfully account for all three phases of time, past, present, and future. And Revelation is speaking to all of them. Okay, our fourth unhelpful aspect here of these first three methods, it downplays the spiritual truths that are of primary importance for us. Each of these three views are primarily rooted in the physical. They're trying to find things in history, current events, and very focused on the physical reality within which we live. When we read the Bible, what we find is that the Bible places a priority of the spiritual realm over the physical realm. It's not saying that the physical is unimportant. It's just saying that the spiritual must inform the physical, not vice versa. So the final view then helpfully addresses these areas. And the final view I want to talk about is idealism. Idealism says that Revelation is a symbolic vision of the church's ongoing struggle with evil throughout all of church history. Revelation depicts the ongoing spiritual battle of all people in various ways. Revelation's imagery all appears elsewhere in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament, so it helps us understand our present spiritual battle in light of former ones. And it calls us to present hope, belief, and endurance. So idealism highlights the importance of the spiritual battle. It accounts for the symbolic elements in Revelation and keeps us tethered to the rest of the Bible while speaking a needed word to us today. We are in what the Bible calls the last days. And this book that many people think speaks about the last days, which it does, has things to say to us in these last days. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, who is Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We are in the last days right now. The last days stretch from Jesus' arrival as a baby through our present and into the future until he returns. So as Revelation is describing the last days, it's speaking to all of church history, including our present day today. So when we read Revelation, we need to understand that we should be reading it with urgency. This is a present pertinent word for us today. We need to hear it. We need to read it. We need to keep it. Lastly, speaking about idealism, the benefit of, ideally, of idealism tying us so closely to the Bible is that it keeps the point of the Bible in front of us as we read Revelation. What do I mean by the point of the Bible? Graham Goldsworthy in the book, The Gospel in Revelation, writes this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the key 
to the interpretation of the whole Bible. That is, Jesus Christ in his person and work gives meaning to the whole Bible. The New Testament states this principle in a number of different ways and, of course, applies it constantly. As we apply this principle to the book of Revelation, it will be not only because the gospel is evident within that book itself, it is vital with Revelation, as with all the books of the Bible, that we do not treat it in isolation. The visions of Revelation must be read in the light of the unified message of the Bible, which reaches its, its goal in Jesus Christ. So the author's intention is that we would find Jesus. His intention is to reveal Jesus to us, to make sense of our lives here in this broken world as we understand who Jesus is, as we understand the gospel. So then, we can approach seemingly confusing parts of the Bible with confidence, and that is what we have today. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. Let me read this for us. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Welcome back to Revelation, right? Here we go. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for writing to us in ways that grab our attention. I pray that these, these words, this vision would be made clear to us. We would understand, but we wouldn't just understand, but our hearts would be poked. We would be drawn near to you. We would see the urgency to not only hear this word, but to keep this word, to believe this word, and let this word transform us. So God, would you do that in these moments together this morning? In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, how we're going to spend our morning today is, I'm going to answer the question, or three questions. Who is the woman? Who is the dragon? And who is the child? And then we're going to note the significance of the wilderness. And then we're going to review just briefly the usage of 1,260 days. So let's begin by answering, who is the woman and see her significance? When we come across the idea of a woman giving birth to a male child in the Bible, the tendency is to think it must be referring to Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. But we must ask, are there other ways in which a woman is talked about in the Old Testament? And what we find throughout the Old Testament is the nation of Israel playing a vital role, and not only a vital role, but being referred to in feminine ways as a woman, a bride, a mother. So Mary is a part of Israel, and she plays a vital role in the biblical storyline. But what's obvious is the amplified role of the nation of Israel throughout God's story. 
so then to convert to further convince us as readers that the nation of Israel is in view here as we're talking about this woman Revelation 12 is going to give us a couple of symbols to help us understand this so it speaks of this woman wearing a crown of 12 stars now this is symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel and the correlation is going to continue to develop as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament and so we move from the 12 tribes of Israel to the 12 apostles and what we see then is this movement throughout the biblical storyline of God's people being the nation of Israel and then that moving towards becoming God's people being Jesus church the Old Testament then is also helpful here in providing us some greater understanding. Let me read a couple verses from Genesis 37, first book of the Bible. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Listen to this. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, these two verses in Genesis 37 are part of the story of a man named Joseph. Joseph is someone that we would call a type of Jesus. Someone who, a symbol or a person or event in the Old Testament that in some way prefigures Jesus, hinting that a greater version of that person, event, um, or thing is going to come. And in Joseph's story, what we find is that he was the youngest brother in a family of 12 brothers, but he received these dreams that were foretelling his future. And essentially these dreams, in these dreams, he was seeing this vision that he was going to rule over all of his brothers. Not only that, but he would rule over the nation of Egypt, essentially. And, and in that he would be ruling over the nation of Israel eventually as well. And in very unexpected ways, this all came to pass. And so as we're reading about these, this dream that Joseph is having in Genesis 37, we're seeing the usage of the sun and the moon. And it says there are 11 stars. And so when we're reading this in Revelation, it's talking about 12 stars, but Joseph would be that 12th star, okay? But this, the usage of the sun, moon, and stars is spot on. And so we can confidently conclude that what's being communicated in Revelation is pertaining to God's chosen people. It says in verse 2 then here, going back to Revelation, that Israel is pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. The event of childbirth is agonizing. I know this because I watched my wife give birth four times. I, I, I can't speak from personal experience, but I, I can see, I can feel the squeeze in my hand. I could hear the groans, the agony. It's real. But this idea of agonizing, of agony, helpfully describes Israel prior to Jesus' arrival. They were a nation that was a shell of its former glory. They were subjects of another nation. The voice of God had disappeared into deafening silence. They had suffered agonizingly for years. And yet, pregnancy also provides an expectant hope. 
This nation that had wandered from God and suffered greatly also had a promise that there was one who would come and set everything right. There was one who was going to come and save them. But the arrival of Jesus brought both joy and pain. The fact that Jesus must die on a brutal, bloody cross said something about Israel. And it says something about me and about you. It says, we have cried out for many things other than Jesus. We are guilty sinners. We've thought that we don't need God. We've thought that we are smarter than him. And like Israel was being compelled to cry out for help, this is true for us also. But the joy attached to the expectant hope of Jesus' arrival is so much better. It cannot be described. It cannot be measured. And so as we look at the nation of Israel here and or God's people in Revelation 12, we can learn that we are to cry out for the one whose life began and ended with a cry. The woman is a picture of God's people. Who then is the dragon? Revelation 12, 9, which we didn't read this morning, we will read next week, but uh, it answers this question clearly for us. It says there that this is Satan, the great dragon who is called the devil and Satan. This is talking about Satan. And we get this description here of Satan, seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. All of this is speaking, these are symbols that speak to the power and authority that Satan possesses which we then see in his next action. It says in verse four of Revelation 12, his tail swept down a third of the stars. Now, if we saw that happen physically, that would be a terrifying occurrence. The power that we would see displayed before our eyes would be unmistakable. Now, just stop for a moment. I want you to think for a moment of Satan's power what you see in this world, when you think of Satan's power, do you marvel at what he is able to do? Or are you struck by the fact that his power is limited? His power is not limitless. It's not an accident that his destruction affects only a third of the stars. If he was able, he would have been able to do infinite damage. He would have done infinite damage, but his capacity is limited. And as we live in a world that is hell-bent on destruction, it should be a comfort that Satan is on a leash. Yes, he does wreak much havoc, but there is a limit to what he is able to do. And so the call for us as we're reading Revelation is not to be amazed at the great red dragon, but to be amazed at Jesus and the fact that his power is infinite, immeasurable. So we find this dragon then being explicit with his intentions. It's said that he stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Notice he didn't attack the woman initially. He's dead set on the offspring. Why is that? He knew who this child was. He was the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
This is a reference to the foretelling of Jesus that we find back in Psalm, the Old Testament book of Psalm, chapter 2. It says there, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is foretelling of Jesus, the anointed one, and how he will come and he will break them with a rod of iron. It foretold of God's son coming to set things right and to rule in a way that no one had ever ruled before. Jesus, the anointed one, was one of a kind. And so it becomes clear that the child being spoken of in Revelation 12 is Jesus. He was the one who was to come from Israel. And so then, it's no coincidence that when we go back and we look at Jesus' life, this is what we see occurring right from his birth. What the great red dragon is seeking to do to him. Matthew 2.13, it talks about there of King Herod, the king at that time, who was seeking to destroy Jesus. And then throughout, this wasn't just at the beginning of Jesus' life, but in John 11, we read there, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this, pan, this man performs many signs. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The dragon incited many people to kill Jesus, including Jesus' so-called friends. We put this in quote, friend in quotes. Judas, Satan wanted to be able to rule with a rod of iron like Jesus. He wanted to be like Jesus. Maybe a better, better way to say it would be he wanted to be Jesus. But even when he thought he had finally accomplished his long sought after mission of killing Jesus, he still couldn't keep him in the grave. In verse 5 of Revelation 12, we find the use of resurrection language as it says that Jesus was caught up to God. And in this, as we see in the resurrection of Jesus, Satan cannot control Jesus. Satan cannot contain Jesus. Satan is unable. Jesus, on the other hand, is able. But Satan is unable. This great beast, so terrifying and mighty, cannot do what he wants with a baby. And so we've got to see this picture. Satan, this great red dragon who wants us to be fixated on all his power and the great things that he thinks he can do or he aspires to be able to do is actually a picture of futility. And Satan knows this. So what does he do? He seeks to do as much damage as possible. It's like a younger brother who is the constant subject of ridicule from his older brother. He's repeatedly lost competitions and been endlessly teased. He knows he's not strong enough to beat up his older brother. He's not more clever with his insults. He becomes, so given all this and, and all the history, he becomes enraged and just wants to cause as much hurt as possible. Flailing punches, 
harsh words and the older brother just kind of has the smirk on his face, maybe a giggle at times. This is what Satan has done by pursuing Jesus, Jesus' church into the wilderness, seeking to inflict as much harm as is possible. This is what we read in verse 6 of Revelation 12. The woman fled into the wilderness. The usage of wilderness has a ton of biblical precedent. The wilderness was a place of danger. It was a place that someone would go to die. It is a place filled with terror, a place of judgment. Again, as the woman runs to the wilderness, it appears the dragon has the woman right where he wants her. But this is also God's design. In this barren wasteland, it says here in Revelation 12:6 that she will be nourished. This is a picture of the church today. In a world that is broken by sin and possessing hatred for Jesus, he nourishes and protects those whom he has saved. So we have to see a tension here. Protection does not mean no trial, no testing. We've got to understand that the protection is speaking of our spiritual reality. Going back to what I said earlier with the, the spiritual realm, reality, truths, trumping physical realms and truths and realities. So we may suffer physically, but still be safe spiritually. We may be persecuted, but still protected. As we go into the wilderness, God promises to nourish us. But that escape into the wilderness, it, it's not forever. And this is expressed symbolically through the use of 1,260 days. So going back to Revelation 11, this is months ago, but in Revelation 11, we dealt with some of the time frames that are talked about in Revelation. When we read 1,260 days here, we shouldn't read this literally. If we do, it's going to lead to all kinds of confusion. I've, I've talked about earlier in our sermon series through Revelation how it mentions repeatedly this idea of sevens. And the number seven signifies completion. Now, 1,260 days is the equivalent of three and a half years. Okay, so, so we got to think symbolically. Three and a half years, if you know your math, that's half of seven. And, and so I just want to throw this slide up here and, and just talk briefly about this biblical theological theme of sevens. So we go back to the very beginning God creates in seven days. And then we move forward in the Old Testament in the time of the prophets. And the prophets talk about another seven coming when God would purify people from their sins. And, and then as we move from Old Testament into the New Testament, we have what we would call the New Testament church age. And this is the final seven of biblical history. And so this usage of three and a half here, the three and a half years, the 1,260 day, 260 days, it's referred in other parts of Revelation as 42 months or 
time times and half a time all of these are talking about this same idea of three and a half and so what essentially is being communicated here this is saying in symbolic terms that there's a defined period of time during which jesus church will be threatened and persecuted during that time it may look like satan is successful like it looked on the cross initially that he was successful but this is why we must read revelation understand its message keep it as it says at the beginning we've got to understand that at the end of the day satan is all smoke and mirrors his power is limited in the face of his threats and taunts jesus intends for us to be nourished now this won't happen by us gazing at the destruction being wrought by satan but rather by gazing at the ultimate power of Jesus. He was the baby who was caught up, meaning the death brought by Satan had no lasting impact. Jesus is the baby boy who smashes his heel on the head of Satan and now rules over everyone and everything. Okay, as I as we wrap things up here, I want to have two points of gospel application, but just a quick reminder. We do, get, we do gospel application, not application here at the end of our sermons. The point being, we don't want you to walk out of here with burdens on your shoulders of things you need to do. The gospel is about what Jesus has done, not what you and I need to do. And so we want to remind ourselves, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. Let's exert all of our energy in believing this about Jesus, believing this is true for us today, believing in him and all of that other stuff, all the aspects of Christian living, the instructions, the commands, all of that will take care of itself if we are rooted in the gospel, if we are believing in Jesus as he revealed himself. So first of all, Jesus is different. I'm saying here, I'm playing off of a little bit what the kids say today, that they'll talk about how someone is built different, that they've got a skill, they've got something that causes them to be different in a certain way. So like like my boys, they'll play ball in the backyard, and one of them will make a shot, they'll make a move, they'll, they'll do something, and, and then they'll, they'll try and flex, and they'll say, I'm built different. And like as a taunt to their their sibling, except the only thing is when Ocell boys try and flex, like it's like there's nothing there because we are we are lanky dudes, and so, um, but that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is different; he's built different in the truest sense of the word. See, our tendency is to marvel at the great red dragon, his seemingly amazing power. We see the destruction and the chaos that's going on in our world, and we tend to recoil in fear. Though his power is real, we've got to remind ourselves it is limited. The limitations of his power must echo in our soul. And then we must preoccupy ourselves with this God who came as a baby. Let the fact that this baby escaped certain death, he was caught up astound you let his resurrection shape you in deep in in deep ways what kind of baby 
can escape the clutches of a certain death, of a great red dragon who lies in wait to kill him. This baby is something to marvel at. And that's what the Bible calls us to do over and over. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he's different than everyone and everything else. Secondly, hope persists. I'm going to go back to the wilderness here. Our wilderness experiences will nourish us. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. God brings you to the end of yourself. He exposes your weakness, not to punish you, but to nourish you. God wants to strip you of your strength and reveal your neediness, not to punish you, but to nourish you. Notice what it said here in Revelation 12, 6. The place where the woman was fleeing to was prepared by God. He had planned it. Reminds me, this has echoes of Genesis 50, 20. Joseph, who we talked about earlier in our sermon. When he reveals himself to his brothers who had done him great harm, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God prepared a place for the woman in the wilderness. Now listen, I'm not saying suffering and sickness and struggle is easy in any sense. It is gut-wrenching, hard. Notice what it said here in Revelation 12, 6. It said, the, the woman fled. Think of this picture, okay? A woman who just gave birth, trying to sprint from terror. I don't know if you've ever seen a woman who just gave birth, but I can tell you that sprinting is the last thing on her mind, okay? But this woman, sprinting from terror, looking back over her shoulder, likely thinking about her baby, crying, gasping for breath, picture of life for Jesus church but the key for us isn't to look back at the terrifying dragon but to set our gaze on the horizon on the place of nourishment on Jesus who is the ultimate nourisher we may not know exactly where God is leading us in this life we might not know the deep valleys, the darknesses that we are going to walk through, but we can be assured that where he leads us will bring satisfaction. And that's a promise we need to preach to ourselves in those dark valleys, in those long nights, in those moments of silence. Preach the promises of God to yourself incite hope because hope does persist i want to end with two passages of scripture here from the book of psalm psalm 23 1 through 4 the lord is my shepherd i shall not want 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That rod that we were reading about earlier, that rod can be a comfort to us. It mustn't just be a tool of war, but it can be a comfort to us as well. And then Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. This is why hope can persist. Because when we look at the horizon, we see Jesus. We know he's coming. We know he is powerful. We know he has won already. And that is our hope. Not in the, the fractured world, fractured circumstances that we live in today. But joy is attached to Jesus. Hope is attached to Jesus. And Jesus is different.